0: Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
2: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
0: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
1: By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot.
2: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Ledus, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon, and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. Well, this is usually the bit where the guest introduces themselves, but uh, as this gentleman isn't here right now, this is an interview that I did with uh, journalist stroke author Bill de Young, who's from the Florida area, and um, his exploits and his uh, meaningful moments with Tom Petty. So we'll, uh, we'll play that, something else later, and um, then Bill will be back on the show in weeks to come. But meanwhile, Mr Bill DeYoung.
3: I was always a fan of rock and roll, you know, and I I, I still remember the day that somebody handed me um, the album, You're Gonna Get It, the second Heartbreakers album, and uh, I thought, well, this is pretty neat, Uh, you know, nobody's doing these punchy rock and roll songs with melody anymore, this was, you know, the height of sort of punk, and I guess what we in America so dreadfully called New Wave music, and I thought, well, this is different. Then I found out these guys were from Florida, and, and, well... You know that Really, these are people that literally grew up 100 miles from where I did, can make incredible music like this. And the first time I saw the Heartbreakers, they were opening for Patti Smith at a, at a concert in Tampa. It was 98 cents to get in. It was the 98 Rock radio station's anniversary. And a friend of mine who worked there gave me the tickets because I'm not very interested in Patti Smith but I remember seeing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and literally fell off my seat at how great that show was. Patti Smith came on and I left, didn't care. And the Heartbreakers stayed with me for many, many years. You know, I basically wrote about them constantly and would visit them on the road and I was the hometown newspaper guy. It was 1985 and the band had been off the road for almost, uh, almost two years and the Southern Accents album was coming out, and so uh, they set up camp here at the Don Cesar Hotel in St. Petersburg Beach, where we all live, which is this big old sort of 1920s castle. It's pink, it's a pink castle on the sand, and Tom uh, would be in the suite on the eighth floor, which is where he always stayed. It turned out they were always there when, when they were playing in the area. They were doing a special for MTV, which happened to be called, you guessed it, Southern Accents. Um, and uh, I happened to be in town from Gainesville. I knew they were doing this, but I was uh, staying at my parents' house. My, uh, the phone rang, and it was Stan Lynch, who's the drummer in the Heartbreakers, and he says, hey, we're doing this thing I'm on the roof of the Don Cesar today. Why don't you come out? Oh, okay. And they were filming the MTV thing. So I go out there, and the band had set up just the five of them, nobody auxiliary. It was just like in a garage and they had set up on this sort of patio outside the 8th floor. Now it's a patio the size of a small house, granted. But there was a uh, I guess what you call a dolly track or a, for the camera to roll around. And they were playing. they played for 45 minutes, just the five of them. And bear in mind, it was the first time they'd performed or done anything live, semi-live in a couple of years. So they were very rusty. They were feeling each other out. Benmont had a little, you know, farfisa organ there. And uh, the, the clip is great. You can see clips of it in that show Southern Accents, which is around in the netherworld on, online if you look for it. But it was essentially the band the crew, Tony Demetriatus, who is Tom Petting, Heartbreaker's manager, and about six other people. And I was one of those six people, and it was just magical, absolutely magical. They played uh, all sorts of things from the old catalog because they didn't really have a set list worked up because they really hadn't thought about it. I remember they played Change of Heart from uh, Long After Dark, which had been on the last tour they did. I remember they played Breakdown, but it went into the old thing they used to do live where Breakdown turned into Hit the Road, Jack, the Ray Charles song, uh, which was great. Petty was wearing his uh, top hat and his little stupid sunglasses. It was that era, folks, and uh, we just, you know, stood off to the side and watched this, and it was just unbelievable. And the song I remember most because it was new, because it was on Southern Accents, which to me is a, a pivotal record in in Tom's growth as an artist. The song I remember most they played is called "Dogs on the Run." One of the things that that really kind of roped me in from the very beginning, was when I met all of these guys, they were very much a team. They were very much an, an underdog team of uh, a band. Granted, you know, Tom was the the songwriter and the singer and the focal point, and, and amazing in many ways, but he always referred to them as the heartbreakers, himself included, and this is something that we would talk about in the many interviews that we did, was I'm a member of this band, And the guys used to tell me back in the days of uh, Hard Promises and Long After Dark that it was very much a collaborative thing, where Tom would bring the songs in or Tom and Mike would bring their songs in. And uh, what can we do with this, guys? And they would all work on it. And, um, you know, I think of so many songs from that period that have this great sort of I don't know. I don't know. It's as a sort of a communal vibe because it's not just Tom. I I think the worm began to turn around traveling Wilbury's time. But if you go back to the earlier days and listen to some of these songs that have this incredible vibe to them, that's because it's all five of them working together. I'm talking about from the first album. There's an acoustic song called The Wild One Forever that uh, that Stan plays unbelievably on. And uh, they, they ended up doing that live for a number of years, too. There's some tracks on Hard Promises. You Can Still Change Your Mind was a favorite of Mike Campbell's. It's on Hard Promises. And uh, he was very pleased with that song because it sounded like the Beach Boys. And he and Tom both told me that's what they were trying to do with that song. From Hard Promises, it's called You Can Still Change Your Mind. The evolution of this band it was fascinating, especially, uh, I would say, in the 1980s, after Howie Epstein joined on bass. Uh, they, they started out great, but after they weren't green anymore, they got better and better and better. And for my money as a fan, and for someone who was able to ask Tom and Mike and Ben and Howie and Stan all, all through the 80s about this, this evolution, it all kind of started when they hooked up with Bob Dylan, which was in 1985. They uh, they played behind Dylan at fa- the first Farm Aid concert in 85. And then at the end of that year, of course, they went off to uh, Australia and Japan. The tour came to uh, the United States the next year, and I, I suppose it went over to England, which is, uh, I think, where they met Jeff Lynne and, and George Harrison came along and all of that stuff happened. But in this period, 85, 86, 87, they really got tightened up as a band. There was a lot of drugs and alcohol involved in this period too, folks. But listen to the album called Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, which to me is the definitive Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album. If you get the box set playback, there's a whole bunch of outtakes from this album. I have an interview on my website that I did with Tom and Mike right after they'd played Madison Square Garden in the summer of 86 with Dylan. Tom very happily and very drunkenly told me that it was the only interview he'd done on the whole tour. And they played me some of the tracks from the album they were working on, which is Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. And it was just raucous, sloppy, wonderful rock and roll. Um, And Tom was saying, this is all I want to do now for the rest of my life. And of course, it wasn't what he did, and he changed his mind. After he met Jeff Lynne, he changed his mind. But that record, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, some of the outtakes are just blisteringly great. As I say, sloppy rock and roll. And what he told me, what they both told me, was that they learned this from Dylan. Go in, cut it once, and then leave it alone. You know, maybe Howie would come in and overdub a high harmony on the third chorus or something. But for the most part, these tracks were done exactly once. I wish that they'd work that way again. There's a couple of tracks on the playback box set, Ways to Be Wicked, which uh, Ben and Tom wrote and they gave to uh, Lone Justice. The Heartbreakers have a version. There's a great song that he co-wrote with Bob Dylan called Got My Mind Made Up. The Dylan cut, and it's also on the playback set. It's sort of the Bo Diddley beat, times 10. I think we had a connection because I was Floridian by birth, and so was he. You know, so you get that kind of deep Southern thing. I can't say we were friends, you know. I was the hometown journalist, and I met him numerous times in the 80s and in the 90s. The last time I saw him, was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 2002. He always knew who I was. We always had a sort of a shorthand rapport because I was, again, somebody from the home state that uh, he knew. I would say that he was very dry, very funny, very sarcastic, very cynical, um, tried very hard to, uh, you know, be be uh, be patient and thoughtful. Um, he also had quite a temper, as I came to learn. Not towards me, but I did see it a few times uh, even backstage and other places. And, uh, you know, if you crossed him, you were sort of off the list. Um, he was just so dry and had this great sort of drawly sense of humor. I mean, everything you see on those video clips is true. That's just the way he was, you know. Uh, I do think as time went by, he sort of became more la than florida but i think that's inevitable isn't it you know um it's like the old hometown is the the more sort of successful you become and the farther away from it you've been you know the old hometown is kind of uh you know scrubbed out of you over time and and distance and success does that um you know having said that there are so many songs that have connections to gainesville um in and the old days and he left to the very end to the very last time i spoke to him he loved to talk about gainesville and the old days but the more the time went by the more you know distance there was it had been a long time ago i think that my favorite interview that we did was this one it uh after they played madison square garden with bob dylan in uh in 86 uh up in the hotel room um I sat there with Tom and Mike for about an hour, and they, you know, had been imbibing a little bit and were just really, really funny and making fun of everybody, and uh, including including me. You know, some of the greatest clips uh, of the Heartbreakers playing live, or maybe the old Gray Whistle Test, uh, a lot of English stuff in German TV, because, uh, yeah, as you know, Tony, we were talking about how breaking the Heartbreakers. Oh, I like that alliteration. Breaking the Heartbreakers in, in, in America was kind of difficult. The first album came out and just sank like a rock. And it wasn't until they'd gone to England. I remember Petty telling me how amazing it was because I think they toured with Blondie, maybe Nils Lofgren, you know, and this was the middle of the Sex Pistols time. And so they were contemporaries, really, of The Clash. They were contemporaries of Elvis Costello and the attractions, or maybe even pre-attractions. And in England, I think they thought they were an English band, you know, because uh, the Englishes, you know, really love that short, punchy American rock and roll. In America, at that time, in the 70s, you can couldn't get arrested doing that. Uh, and so, um, so they basically, and, and I hate the expression "new wave," and a lot of us always have. But I think they sort of rode in on the new wave with Blondie and the Police and all of that. And a lot of people over here were, were uh, really surprised to discover that not only were they an American band and not English, but they were a bunch of rednecks from Central Florida uh, who grew up, you know, listening to the Rolling Stones, and it, it was it was kind of amazing. Now the English thing. Obviously, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and I love saying Heartbreakers as opposed to Tom Petty because, as I said before, it was always a band. It was always this group ethic. And that did change over time, but that's a story for another time. Always in England, they were huge, you know, and I think, looking back on it, I think perhaps the English had a sort of pr- proprietary feeling about this band. Like, you know, they, they're one of us. And I know they, you know, are that we sort of birthed them. Well, arguably isn't true, but. Uh, England always meant a lot to them and they, were, they used to go over there all the time. Well, you know, Tony, I think taking, uh, first of all, to a slightly sarcastic tone, which Tom would appreciate, uh, when we lost Elvis back in 77, uh, John Lennon was uh, not talking to anybody, but the, when he came out with Double Fantasy and was talking, they said, well, how did you feel when Elvis died? And he said, well, you know, Elvis died when he went into the army. Uh, which uh, I can sort of relate to. How did I feel when Tom passed? Um, Tom passed when he fired Stan Lynch in 1993. Uh, For me, that was the end of the Heartbreakers, and it was also, God love him, the end of my relationship with the band. And Stan and I are still friends, I'm glad to say. But that whole spirit of camaraderie that I had responded to so uh, strongly in the early days was long gone. This all happened after... The traveling Wilburys, and when Tom became, you know, a huge rock star, and instead of working out the music with the band, he told them what to play. It's inevitable; all things must pass, to quote another great man. You know, things change. How did I feel when Tom passed away? The last time I spoke to him was again at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. We had a nice interview, but he had—he'd clearly changed. He sort of floated into the room in a cloud of cigarette smoke, of course. And I remember telling him that he reminded me of George Harrison, who had died the year before. I said, you remind me of George, the way you carry yourself. And he says, George who? Like, uh, I think he thought maybe I meant George Draculius, who was one of his engineers. How did I feel when Tom died? Uh, sad, like all of us. Uh, you know, it's certainly the end of an era. Um, I had pretty much nothing but great experiences in those days. Uh, it made me sad that... Uh, you know, a, a wife lost lost her husband, and two wonderful young women lost their father. Uh, I knew Tom's father fairly well, and his brother, and a whole lot, and his ex-wife, a lot of friends from Gainesville. And so it's always sad when somebody like that is gone. Um, musically, for me, for me, it had all ended a long time before that, but... Uh, you know, I think I think we're all lucky, as in the case of Lennon and Prince and Bowie and everybody else great who's gone, that the music remains. And it's so strong that it will always be here. It'll be here after you're gone, Tony, after I'm gone. And Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have a place in my heart and the hearts of many, many millions of people. So that's
2: the gift of art, isn't it? Excellent Tom Petty moments there from Mr. Bill DeYoung. Bill, like I said, is from the Florida area. He's a journalist and author with several books, and um, there'll be more from him in weeks to come. But he'll be introducing himself and telling you a little bit more about his career. You'll listen to Moments to Rock with me, Tony Michael. This Moments to Rock is where we delve deep into uh, talking to whether it's authors, journalists, like you just heard, uh, singer-songwriters, which is just coming up, um, record company people, like promotions people, press people. Uh, salespeople, uh, road managers, uh, tour managers, etc, etc. And uh, obviously managers, so there are plenty in uh, weeks to come. Also, if you've not heard us before, then delve through the archives and you'll find uh, old interviews with the Ramones, Steve Winwood, Ray Davis, the Cramps, etc, etc. Now, back to an artist we had on a few weeks ago. His name's Ed Rogers, he's from New York, and he's got stories about Bruce Springsteen, amongst a bunch of other people. Take it away, Ed.
4: I've met Springsteen a few times. One of the times it was the Patty Patty Smith were doing a um, show at the CBGB's theater. There was a CBGB's theater for about 2 weeks. So they moved from the the old club to this theater and they put on the best of the the best of the uh, New York scene basically. And Patty had the closing night. And there were too many people in there. So the fire department turned up in the middle of the show. I remember Lenny going please don't, don't just you know having to go out after patty left and calm the audience down and said look guys you know like this is our equipment right now and if, if you this we can't you can't destroy this so we went back down down stage, and um we're waiting outside and who's right next to us but springs steve so patty comes out of this tiny little dress. hey melanie why don't you guys come in i'll talk to bruce later like, fucking hell! I got in there before Bruce did, <laughs> and she knew that we had a birthday present for her, so that was why she was let in. You know, Springsteen was there because they had just written because of the night and they were about to record it, so he was there to talk. You know, about when they were going to record the thing, and the other time I met Springsteen was at this private gathering for uh, Music Cares, and um it was a reunion of the Young Rascals, and I got a drink and I went to a pillar early in the in the show and i'm standing against the pillar and then the place gets really crowded you know and it's like good location to see somebody And the next thing this guy goes could you move over just a little bit springsteen again then the next thing i get pushed on this side and it's a little steven so i'm like okay i got this these two wedged in so bruce turns around to me and goes um you know, i gotta go up there in a minute if you hold my spot i'll get you a drink on the way back joins the band does good loving goes gets with me a drink and brings it back i mean there's three sides to, to springsteen there's the the boss side there's the he's talking to you and i side but i've also been around him when he's talking to his family there's a different side i mean it's interesting to see i mean he's a masterful masterful interviewer just just really really smart guy and I'll tell you who else is a, is, a, is an absolutely fantastic interviewer, and should get an Academy Award. To be honest with you, as the best actor, rock actor in the world is Ray Davies because I've seen, probably I've met him about a dozen times, but I've seen him in every persona, like that is possible. I've seen him when he's when he's, you know, like doing his um, I'm on stage. I've seen him right at the bar before he went on stage. He goes, oh, I've got to go give the punters and writers like the, 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 the down story and make them think I'm, I'm really doing bad. And I'm like, and he's saying this to me and I'm thinking to myself, and he walked out there and he had the audience, there were writers and there was some compilation coming out. He had the writers all in his hand. He walked out and he got up on the stage and goes, you know, we tried really hard in America and we let you down because we couldn't get to the next level and we feel you, the writers, supported. They were all crying in their seats. They were all crying in their seats, and he walks back, and as he's walking by me, he blinks and says, I got him, didn't I? Um, Had dinner with him one time, and, and uh, he, he walks in. Of course, he's late, which, you know, you anticipate that. And he sits down, and he goes, I'm doing a film on uh, Monk. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You know? And he goes, but I've got to tell you right now, I can't go into the other room. I'm like... To begin with i don't think there was another room <laughs> and he goes jack nicholson is in town and he's eating at that that next room so we can't go in there because i'm dating his girlfriend and he'll beat me up and he's been telling me and following me around town for the last two days telling me he's gonna beat me up and i'm like listening to this And at some point i got up to go to the men's room and there wasn't a back room <laughs> are you really doing a film on monk but ray is is masterful dave just wants to keep on playing and they were filming him and they actually his two brothers are making a a documentary supposedly. And at the end of the film, I'm sorry, at the end of the tour, they said there might be one more date if you're interested. And we were like, yeah, you know, really. And so they go about a month later, they call us and they go, how would you like to come over and do, um, a Dave Davies date in London? It was right before Christmas and we were playing the, um, Islington hall. So we get to the Islington Hall. They paid for us to fly over. We get there. Um, and there is the entire Ray Davies family. I mean, every, every like you would walk up and almost every song that was written was one of these people that was standing there. There was Rosie. There was, you know, there was this person. There was that person. And I'm like, my God, I can see where Ray gets. He's got a big family. He's been writing songs about them all. So anyway, Dave gets up, does his set. And in the middle of the set, I get called by his brother. And he goes, I want you to come to the sound booth now. I'm like, okay. So I grabbed my band members and I said, come on over. I don't know what it is. And and he turns around and goes, Ray's going to join him the first time for 10 years. And it'll probably be the last time. Sure enough, Ray comes out and joins them for you really got me. And then away he goes. And that's the last that they've ever, the time they've ever performed together. You would go to clubs in New York, and you would know all the same people. And after a while, all those people that were in the clubs, especially with, during the, the the pre-punk period, they would end up being in bands. And um, there was one gig in particular. I went to see the Sensational Alex Harvey band. They were playing this small theater. And in that, in that room was the Ramones, the Heartbreakers. Six months later, they're playing... CBS And, you know, I, I think back now, I said, that gig had Blondie, you know, all the people from Blondie, who, by the way, when Blondie first started out, were probably the worst band you ever saw. And that they made it in Britain was uh, purely because obviously, De- Debbie was a cute looking girl, but she used to be a waitress at Max's. so when she first started, they were doing gigs, you could go for a dollar, all the beer you could drink, you got to see uh bills like television robert gordon uh who had a really great band called robert gordon and the tough Dots when they first started out and then there would be blondie and she was doing covers she was doing shangri-la covers you know so they purely made it because of her looks and i think she just was the face that sold in england we were presenting to you guys our new york sound but all of those guys were were formerly members of glitter bands I, I can tell you that um the Ramones, when when the first time people saw the Ramones, it was like, What in God's name is this? And the press got behind them that there was a big PR buzz here for Dr. Feelgood because they were the new English R and B band, they were like the Stones. So they booked them at the bottom line and um the opening band was the Ramones. And so because they were a press band, Andy Warhol was there, the the high saluting people and um so Here's the Ramones going to open up for the, the elite music business. And they came on, and they played so loud and so fast. What I remember in, to this day, and it was in tears about, is that Andy, Andy Warhol had the, 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 the prime seat in the place. And he had a bottle of Dom Perignon, and the Dom Perignon, after the first couple of chords, fell into his lap, and it just covered him over with, with champagne. And I thought, this is the future of rock and roll. This is where it's going. you know this the record executives were all trying to get out of the room. it was so loud and you know of course once they started it was that one. and of course, you know a year later the Ramones go to England and they do their their shows over there and the whole culture changed. When I whenever I'm asked to do radio, I always will put in a new segment and it's not necessarily based on sales, it's just on my ears. so I will always have between four and eight songs that are new acts. If you if you love music, you've got to not only appreciate the past, and there's always new music to go into, whether it's jazz, acid, whatever you want to call it, but you also got to stay current. I have so many friends that all they want to talk about is Beatles, Beatles this, Beatles. And it's like, you know what, guys? You're stuck in this time zone and we're making music and you've got to be able to move with it. You talk about the pays uh, the Paisley underground scene. Everybody wanted to be around uh, Roger McGuinn when that happened. And uh, the very first show I ever produced was um, was Roger McGuinn. And um, we were friendly with the McGuinn's because Melanie had worked with the McGuinn's, and and uh, she had to entertain them. And we became really, really good friends with them. So for one of we were going to do this anniversary, and and uh, uh roger's wife camilla calls up and goes you know we're thinking of coming to new york don't you have a party would you like roger to 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 perform for you and we were like are you serious so i had to i was responsible to put together the backing band for him and also to put together the set whatever set i gave him he was going to play and um so i knew this band called velvet crush who were assigned to creation records i put together the set and in the middle of the set uh when they were going through the rehearsal roger goes what song is this i said it's artificial energy he goes who wrote this i said you did and um subsequently i guess he looked it up and found out that he did write it it was really funny he was like i like this song <laughs> i'm
2: like yeah because you wrote it you bloody idiot ed rogers from new york and a wonderful storyteller before that an equally wonderful storyteller bill de Bill DeYoung will be back uh, in weeks to come, telling us some more stories and, uh, from his archive interviews. But uh, more of that later. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michael and you heard people's Moments That Rock. Uh, like I said, delve through the archives, find other stuff, and don't forget, while you're on here, go check out all the other wonderful stuff on Pantheon Podcasts. And we will see you next week.